This is Americans Watching the Footy, and we are to podcasts what Leo Messi is to soccer. Right, Jared? Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack, and here he comes! This is Buddy episode 119 our round 18 recap i'm benjamin castle alongside my brother ethan who is alongside his son grian he is out cold awake enough that he's rolling over and not like twitching uh yeah i guess he's not in like a dream or anything right now his twitching while he dreams is ridiculously adorable as is pretty much literally everything else he does i mean it's usually that way with cats but with him it's elevated interesting round where the best games were largely early on and there was a very clear cutoff between the good and the bad i think this was an interesting round because yes it was seems like a good idea to make other plans sunday that totally lived up to the billing but also it was a round full of storylines and narratives like sub rounds we've had trouble coming up with the main character this round there are like five picks at least four i wrote down four but there's, there are probably one or two that I missed as well. Maybe the most narrative-heavy round yet of the season? Yeah, which I think makes it fun. I think there's more than enough drama and talking points that even with only a couple of close games, this is going to be a pretty entertaining show. Those close games started right away, but the drama started a couple days before them because it was on Tuesday that Stuart Dew was sacked. We talked about it a little bit in both our round 17 recap and our preview of this past round. But that set us up for a lot of narratives this week. Just to start on that, look at kind of the pressure that some other coaches have on them. Storylines also in North with maybe Alistair Clarkson coming back soon. Spoiler alert, Stuart Dew, as interesting as that whole thing was, and the Gold Coast Suns, not the main character. Now, we had another big thing that happened throughout the week that we'll touch on later because it ties in more with a later game. There were there were multiple things that would have most weeks been like the obvious pick. Just there was there was competition. It was also a week of some pretty notable milestones. And there were two coaching milestones in the Thursday nighter. John Longmire victorious in his 300th game as Swans coach and his 500th game between playing and coaching in the AFL, beating Luke Beveridge in his 200th game as Bulldogs coach. It was the Swans 11-12-78, defeating the Bulldogs 11-10-76. It felt like a game the Bulldogs should have won, honestly, in a lot of ways. They let a good start slip away. Five goals to two in the first. They kicked nine scoring shots to five and ended it up 19. Swans were up three at the break when the Dogs went quiet. Had to make an early sub because of a concussion to James O'Donnell, but I don't think that was the reason that Things really turned for them. Big games out of a number of forwards. It was a very tall lineup, 
for the Swans, maybe to counter the Bulldogs' size, and it worked. Guys getting involved, not just from goals, but I mean, certainly they had some other impact there. But the biggest contributor was Todd Papley on his birthday, in terms of goals anyway, kicking 4-2 from 14 touches. See, he was like an early candidate for main character, and then was like totally out the window after that, fell off very quickly just in comparison to some of the other things that went on. I thought in a lot of ways, like one of the things I took out of this game was, I mean, the Swans were due for a close win and they got it. But when you look at the overall stats, it probably did stack up to be like a game that you would think the Dons would win. Like if you had a hundred games with, you know, pretty much all of those stats lining up the way they did, other than results from scoring shots and stuff, I would say the Bulldogs win at least like 60% of the time. Although I don't think the expected score was anything dramatic. Don't believe so. I was surprised I think the expected score actually favored the Swans. I'm going to check on that for you quick. There are multiple expected score metrics. You're looking at X score here. Yeah, this actually had the Swans just off of like the shots that were taken winning by like seven. But I think when you look at you know the number of inside 50s and tackles and individual performances, I thought the Bulldogs were probably the superior team. But Sydney, between playing at home, a really good game out of Errol Golden and just laying a shitload of tackles ended up doing enough to win this game. I think the game kind of turned, you know, you talked about Sydney's tall forwards. You had two things go on there. You had Buddy Franklin struggling against Ryan Gardner at the start of the game and then getting better as the game went on. And even though he's like clearly not as good of a kick for goal as he once was, just his impact and his presence and the fact that you have to devote someone to him opens up a lot. And also that the dogs are suffering a bit in terms of their talls, obviously with Liam Jones out, Tim O'Brien hurt. A better game for Alex Keith. Who was his matchup again? I don't remember, but he was all over. The other thing with the Sydney Forge that I really liked in this game was that Joel Amarty and Sam Wicks both made themselves useful outside of the forward 50, Amarty especially. This is what I was hinting at earlier. Useful mostly in, in terms of marking, beating to spots. It remind me of what Jamar Eugle Hagen has done. Maybe they were looking at some of the film this week and realized, wait, this is very attainable for us too with our wealth of tolls. Amarty's stat line tells me a lot about his effectiveness. 1-1, only eight disposals, but eight tackles. On the dog side, frustrating because you had, you know, good game out of Tim English. They didn't have a, a real ruck to oppose him, which was really the biggest surprise at selection was that Tom Hickey was left out. See, my question, and I'm not sure about this, I guess what the Swans did was accept, well, Hickey hasn't been very good and English would just kick his ass. Laddams isn't ready. I guess the best option that is just, I guess, cut your losses and have a lot of talls elsewhere with Hayden McLean taking the brunt of the ruck. It's a tough question to answer. It's like, I, I, I guess it worked here, barely. Would it have been worth playing a true roughman to have someone to match up with English? Or just like, well, he's going to get his anyway. Let's just go get stuff elsewhere. I thought, you know, you had... Bondempelli, Libertori, and Richards play really well. But other than that, like Jack McRae, okay, not special. Bailey Williams, okay, not special. Forwards not named Aaron Naughton, very, very quiet. That was the biggest issue for the Dogs. They had no other tall forward that was really able to step up or any forward at all. Waitman got his moments, but no one was able to bring in enough marks. And credit to the Sydney defense for clamping down in that respect. I feel like for as many good games as Cody Wakeman has, he has as many where he's almost not there. 
yeah, it's just like if you look at the overall stat line, but then you look at, you know, like for the entire season, then you look at how it's distributed. It's like he should have more games where he's just decent. I think you were asking for something like that from him in our progress reports, and we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, and I mean, just one more goal could have won him this game. I mean, duh. You know, I have continued to like for the dogs as kind of a supporting player, and I liked again in this game was Anthony Scott. He got a goal to put him up with a little over 16 minutes left. Lead changed hands a bunch of times down the stretch, which is part of what made this game really fun. Within the fourth quarter alone, you had five lead changes and one tie. First, Scott gave the dogs a lead. Then Papley tied it up on a dribbler. Sydney went back in front when a buddy snap missed for behind. Eugle Hagen gores at the other end after a dumb free kick given away by Dane Rampey. Like, he didn't need to hold Aaron Naughton, and he did. And then Naughton hit Jamara, who finally got in on the scoring. Had been a pretty quiet night for him up until then. But one thing that happened on the go-ahead Tom Padley goal with 521 left, and happened a bunch of times in this game, was that the Sydney forwards were able to outnumber the Bulldog defenders, kind of leak out behind them. Things that you really shouldn't be letting happen, especially against a team that's lining up a bunch of talls instead of a bunch of small forwards. Like, I don't have an explanation for how that happened. I guess they were preoccupied with those tall one-on-ones. I'm not entirely clear there, but yeah, it did lean very tall for the Swans, obviously, between Franklin, Amarty, Wicks, McLean, McDonald. I thought it was going to be too tall for their own good at times, but with Amarty and Wicks getting involved further up the ground, they were able to divide and conquer pretty well all over the oval while some of the smaller players still had their good impact. Arrow Golden with another great game. Despite not scoring a goal, he did pretty much everything else, and not even Marcus Bonapelli could quiet him. Golden with 30 disposals, 7 tackles, and 773 meters gained. And one of those smaller players, along with Papley, that continues to impress us is Ollie Ford, who's damn versatile. He kicked two straight from 23 and 592 meters. He had the first goal of the fourth quarter that gave the Swans a three-point lead then. But yeah, it happened again with just another Sydney outnumbering situation that put the Swans up with the last goal of the game, 76-75 with 521 left. Happy birthday to Papley. Uh, He's a day older than Ethan. And so I guess they are both in the most dangerous years of their life. The thing is, I don't love celebrating goals. Well, you love celebrating goals that aren't his. You love celebrating goals against him. In generally, interesting player because he managed a couple goals despite spending 77% of the game in the defensive half, which is normally his area. I think this time was interesting because he played a little bit more towards the outside, towards the right wing, looking at that heat map. I think of him as someone who's usually more towards the middle, but, you know, really quality player and... Obviously, still a very tough hill to climb for the Swans if they're going to be a finalist. I think the Dogs are still in pretty good shape to make it there. I expected this to be a game they dropped, and the Bulldogs obviously have some winnable ones coming up near the end of the campaign when they have Hawthorne and West Coast rounds 22 and 23. These next couple weeks, though, uh, these next three aren't easy for Essendon to begin round 19. What a great Friday nighter that should be. Then... The Giants and Ballarat, and a rematch with Richmond round 21. You talking about Florida in defense reminds me that on the taller side of defense, the Swans did have to reconfigure things because Lewis Bellican hurt his hamstring in the third quarter. Ryan Clark was the sub, so definitely not like for like. And Sydney had had problems when they had to change up some of the matchups and positioning in defense. 
the prior week when Aaron Francis had to come on then, they managed to hold things down. And I mean, the deliveries into 50 sometimes weren't great, but bottom line is the Swans won out in their defensive 50. The only thing, had the Dogs won this game, I would have credited it to their ground ball success, which was really noticeable when they got control of the game again for patches of the third quarter. It's fitting that you know a milestone game for John Longmire. There were some interesting late coaching decisions after Justin McInerney failed to put the game away, missing on the run with 112 left. Swans led by two, and they immediately withdrew everyone back to their own half, basically. They let Ed Richards run all the way out of his own 50 with, like, no resistance, and it worked. They did a good job making sure that Aaron Naughton couldn't take a pack mark late, and then James Robottom was able to kick out of his own 50 to close the game. And fun fact is the eighth straight win for the 15th place team. So uh, Frio, pressure's on. Uh, Frio's actually hosting the Swans this coming week. And that's a matchup the Swans won last year out west. It was round 18 last year, in fact. It was a matchup they lost at home earlier this year, obviously. With uh, the cheeky Luke Jackson being influential. He was main character that round, I believe. I also thought the interaction after the game was really fun. You know, I think this season, all the tight losses have really weighed on John Longmire. You've seen it in in his reactions and stuff. All all the disappointing fourth quarters in particular. They honestly taken the Richmond mantle a little bit as of late. So it was really funny the way that ended. And then seeing the players like want to cheer him off. And he's like, no, fuck off. It was it was very entertaining. That was one of the other highlights of this game for me. They managed to get him in the circle. You mentioned McInerney wasn't able to put away the game, but his 23 disposals were impactful, as were Luke Parker's 23. Harry Cunningham remained solid in defense and was able to help keep those matchups steadily in the Swans' favor once Melkin went off. Cunningham with 18 disposals and 8 marks. Love Robottom's game, a goal from 17 and an octopus, and got and that last kick out helped seal the game for him. And Isaac Heaney won one from 14, nine contested possessions, and eight tackles. Able to help body up at stoppages against the Bulldogs, who, I mean, that's got to be one of the most important things, if not the most important when playing against the Bulldogs, is try to cut them off at the source of the stoppages, because between Bonapelli, Liberatore, and Trelore, they will so often win out of clearances, and the Dogs were plus 18 in clearances in this game. They were also plus 34 in hitouts, doubling Sydney up 68 to 34. That's really no surprise. That was kind of what the Blondes signed up for with their lineup decisions, and it probably wouldn't have been that much better even if Tom Hickey had played. Tackles favored the Swans 90 to 62, including 22 to 9 inside 50. That's the row bottom effect. Something I didn't understand. The dogs only ended up using 63 interchanges. Feeling I was thinking maybe it was from having to bring on the sub a bit earlier. I'm not entirely sure. No, I don't think those things add up. I feel like once you've brought the sub on, it's like, all right, we know how we can pace this and keep guys fresh and probably fail to do that. And I don't know how impactful it was, but in a game where every little mistake could be magnified because it's decided by two points, I don't know. I also remember Sam Darcy going off. Uh, oh, yeah, the that's right. That explains it. Yeah, so Darcy went off near the middle of the third quarter, was a court quad, and ended up with some significant internal bleeding from that. He'll be out for at least the next three games, Josh Gavlich reported. 
Kid can't catch a fucking break. No, he can't. And uh, they should get Bailey Smith back, though. He's expected to face Essendon on Friday. That also from Gavilich. Adam Trelore finished this game with 33 disposals and 7 clearances. Marcus Bonampelli, 2 goals, a behind 31 disposals, 11 score involvements, 8 clearances, 8 tackles, 646 meters. Todd Libertore, a goal, 31 disposals, 20 contested possessions, 11 clearances, 7 tackles. Ed Richards, a behind, 28 disposals, 11 marks, and 10 intercepts. Jack McRae, a behind in 24 disposals. Tim English, 60 hitouts. 22 disposals, 10 clearances, 10 score involvements. English still would have ways to go for the single-game record. That's, I believe, 80 from the one and only Todd Goldstein. Bailey Williams, 21 disposals and 8 marks. Aaron Naughton, 3-1, 15 disposals and 7 marks. One more thing. So, you know how, like, five or more goals is a bag? On the Mason Cox show, they came up with the term for, like, a guy getting 50-plus hitouts. You're a plumber because you have a lot of tap. I feel like we could do better than that. It's tangential enough. I don't know. I feel like we could come up with something funnier. But you joke about, I mean, you could do a lot of different musicians for having a lot of hits, but obviously Chris Brown comes to mind. Oh, come on. In like, terms that's of, way too easy. I, I, I know. In terms of taps, maybe you could be like tapping on guitar, so it'd be like something about Eddie Van Halen. Eh, tap, you know, the bugle. I mean, it's more of an American thing. You know, Australia has the last post. I don't know. We'll, we'll work on it. We'll we'll get back to you on it. Maybe. We might just forget about it. Now, I'll remember this. Uh, Melbourne 16-9-105, defeating Brisbane 16-8-104. The MCG curse continues. The Lions have now lost 14 of 15 at the G, going back to 2015. 7 of 8 since 2019, which is the year they leapt up from 15 to 2nd and began their current final streak. That's really the more significant one. It is still really funny that the one win was a final last year against these demons. And that and that Melbourne they kind of just spent everything in the tank on that and then didn't show up the next week. I, I enjoyed that. And also considering that they had gotten beaten so thoroughly by Melbourne three weeks prior at the GABA. Meanwhile, a power outage could have saved the Lions in the final minute, maybe. But once Jake Melcham took that mark, it was probably too late. What a few weeks for Melksham came on as the sub in Alice Springs when Bailey French went off and has established his spot again since. Had a few early misses, but had a couple important ones late. And yeah, hitting that winner with 33 seconds left. Basically, if you didn't watch this game, A, you missed out. B, what you need to know is the Demons dominated early, kicked four goals within the first five minutes to take a 24-0 lead. Then got absolutely spanked for a while. They... Trailed by a point at halftime, trailed by 28 midway through the third, 26 early in the fourth, and then went on the sprintic run to win the game, 28-1 to one over the final 17 minutes. I I don't know what to think. Were the Lions just banking all the power outage then? I don't know. I love, though, at the start of the game, a couple minutes in, someone had tweeted like, yeah, I guess Grundy was the problem all along. And then looked like there were other problems, and then, and that, yeah, Brody Grundy was the problem. Max Gone returned to Max Gone-ness to the tune of 39 hitouts, which is tough enough against Oscar McInerney, but like true midfielder numbers otherwise, with 29 disposals, 21 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 8 intercepts, 7 tackles, 
457 meters gained, and probably when he emptied out his pockets getting back home, he saw the hearts of thousands of Lions fans fall out of them. Also, Christian Vitraka had a monster start to this game, finished with four goals. He, you know, after he had a bunch of misses a couple weeks ago against, who was that against? Remind me. It was against the Giants where he kicked no goals for an else. Not great against so long in terms of accuracy. Well, right now he's feeling it. Yeah, he's kicked 8-2 these past couple weeks. Four goals straight against the Saints. And this past Friday kicked 4-2 from 26. And they're not just easy shots. Like, he's playing with so much confidence right now. Playing with enough confidence to take a mark on the edge of 50, play on, wheel around, and kick a snap. Like, this is reminiscent of what he was confident enough to do two years ago on the flag run. 16 contested possessions and 7 tackles as well, by the way. Just an incredibly versatile player. You can play him all over the four two-thirds and have good results come from it. And you knew he was going to get more forward time. That was established before the game pretty early on this week that Simon Goodwin said, yeah, this was going to continue while Kazi Pickett would be a little more on ball in the midfield. Yeah, that's not a change I would have made. Like, I think taking Kazi out of the forward area really doesn't make a ton of sense, but it obviously worked. Yeah, it worked. Kazi got three. Got Darcy Wilmot holding the ball to cap off their six-goal first quarter. Crowned one near the middle of the third, and then started that run back for the Demons with just over seven minutes left. He couldn't mark against Kadeem Coleman, but he beat multiple Brisbane defenders to take the crumb and score his third on the run. And finally, we had a case where a Kazi goal energized Melbourne to the win. We've been waiting for it. I love it when a coach comes up with a solution that isn't obvious to schmucks like me and it worked it's a nice reminder like of why these people are paid to do what they do and why we're not and i wish that happened more often because you come out of things like that feeling smarter you've learned something i had kind of seen it coming honestly i knew they weren't going to drop picket and obviously petraka was going to get more forward time and that will continue whenever clayton oliver gets back his timeline at this point is uh four weeks i guess or closer to three at this point, then? You know who was an unsung hero in this game for Melbourne that I think has cemented his lineup spot for at least a couple of weeks? Ben Brown. He had an early goal, a couple of times where he was going for forward ruck contests against Oscar McInerney, holding his own in there, still doing some stuff on the wing. But this was a much more free-flowing and versatile version of Melbourne than we've seen in a long, long time. And it's... It's been fun. It's a lot more fun to watch than what they had been doing. Well, also, they had needed their talls to lead a lot more. You'd seen it sometimes from Jacob Van Royen, who came back in. That was part of Grundy being omitted to work on his forward craft in the reserves. But Brown led back to the ball sometimes after leading Jack Payne further up the ground, which was great. It was the first time in a while that we've seen Jack Payne be taken out of the game, and he has established himself as the line's most important one-on-one defender to allow Harris Andrews to do that roving center half-back work at which he's excelled this year. Andrews still had a solid game, and I also thought Ryan Lester played pretty well for what it's worth. Lester was able to continue some of that carrying work, but Andrews' 15 disposals, 10 marks, and 9 intercepts were still a pretty regular game for him, but not having Payne winning his matchup definitely hurt. Angus Brayshaw, I thought this was one of his best games. A behind in 29 disposals is kind of normal for him, but I just thought he was a high-impact player who was super involved. 
Lockie Hunter, 26 disposals, 559 meters. What a story he's been. He deserves a lot more attention. Jack Viney, a goal, 25 disposals, eight tackles. Alex Neal Volan is usually a good bet to kick the first goal. He did that. He had 21 disposals. Yeah, that's the fourth time he's kicked the first goal this year, which is tied for the most in the league this year. Is that with Josh Dacos? I would imagine. Either that or maybe Sam Powell Pepper, honestly. I think Dacos. Yeah, that was his 100th career goal, and he's kicked 12 goals this year in 12 different games. Jake Bowie, a goal off 19 disposals. I think that goal was off a really bad turnover, right? Yeah, that was. It was uh, Connor McKenna overshooting Will Ashcroft on a kickout. And then Jake Melcham, who ended up being one of the heroes, 2-1 off 13 disposals with 10 marks. This Melbourne forward line is really crowded all of a sudden, especially with Ben Brown playing well. Like, Josh Shackey doing everything right in the VFL, and he's not even close to selection. And who knows what the deal's going to be with Grundy now. One more stat from Max Scott. I know I mentioned a lot of his lines earlier, but... 39 hitouts, 17 of them to advantage. How many of McInerney's 33 were to advantage? Eight. And Van Royen was very efficient in the ruck as well. Five of his seven to advantage. So overall, that's 22 to eight in terms of hitouts to advantage. And you can understand then why Melbourne were plus 13 in clearances. You know, the other big observation I had out of this game was that both teams were great at scoring off of center clearances but neither could do anything to stop the other in that regard. And that's something that, you know, when you play against either of these teams, you might have to consider, like, do we go super aggressive on clearances knowing that we may give up a few, but we also are going to get ours? That's It's it's difficult there run the 666. I feel like that that's kind of necessary there because it's not easy to be able to get your numbers back to defend that. Something to consider. In terms of stat surprises, uh, Joe Danaher being the Lions beating disposal getter is not something I had on the cards. Something that I certainly appreciate as he is a member of drafting all the Dunny. One of my seven players to record at least 100 points. I also had an eighth on the bench. Who'd you leave on the bench? Max Holmes. Ooh. He still won though, right? Still won. Played Jack Ross over him. Look, I topped 1,700 even with leaving 52 more points on the bench. And I had 1,699. And half my team broke 90. Most I left on the bench was 88 for Connor McDonald, actually. But back to Danner's stats. Kicked two goals, three from 24. Eight marks and 490 meters. This was the Lions' first loss this year, in which Hugh McCluggage had 20 disposals. He kicked a behind from 22 and 10 marks. So there goes that streak. Some other big streaks died this week, as we'll get into. Yeah, well, locking Neil with his nine clearances as well. That's another one that takes a hit. He had 19 disposals and 13 contested possessions, but... Had to work for every single one of those as these other statistics made quite clear and just the flow of play in general. My favorite midfielder to watch for Brisbane was Will Ashcroft with a goal from 17 and three assists. I wonder if he's taking after Leo Messi a bit. No, we're not going to shoehorn this into anything else. Just like Carlton tweeting something about that, like, no, there is one. There is only one. Collingwood, 18-5-113, defeating Fremantle, 10-7-67. Benjamin, this was your game. It was a 61-13 to 13 second quarter that really broke this game open. It seemed like it all happened very, very quickly, kind of all in the final 12 or so minutes of the second quarter because it was only 43-26 to 26 with about 12 minutes left, and then all of a sudden just boom, boom, boom. And then like seven more booms for Collingwood. Yeah, I think 
it's officially time to bury any possibility of flag mantle 2023. We are down to 14 legitimate candidates to make finals. And we're down to about three flag contenders, maybe four, which we kind of were already down to anyway. But it's disappointing. We've talked about with Fremantle. They had, despite getting Luke Jackson an offseason that we weren't particularly big fans of, especially giving Blake Akers away for just a third round pick. You've had a season where they kind of abandoned a lot of their identity that made them so good last year, and they've had more than a few games where they've just gotten whacked, and this this was one of them. Yeah, another one of those a week after getting whacked on their home turf by Carlton. Frio were strong from center clearance early on. That was kind of their saving grace. They had six of the first seven center clearances, and then Collingwood had the first six of the second quarter, and the tide started turning from there. Frio were good on their chances when they got into the forward 50. And strangely, once the margin had been worked out so much, and despite water falling from the sky, they actually did okay slowing down the game. I wonder if that's mostly because they were able to handle things more easily in the rain through slowing things down. It was a very puzzling game for me in general, looking at what Frio exactly were doing. Uh, They won the first third and fourth quarters combined. They did not win the first quarter, though. Their first quarter was, well, they were down 18-1 to and then cut it to 25-20. But Bailey Banfield belongs at the 18. He can be a bit too aggressive for his own good at times, but he belongs. But yeah, that that second quarter was really where things were decided. And it's just, it happened very suddenly. Obviously, both Dacos brothers involved in that. Nick continuing to play a lot in the midfield. Jordan Degoe, very good in his 150th game with 26 disposals and eight marks. If he had his on-field decision-making off the field, he would be, like, straight as an arrow. I, I will say he, you know, to our knowledge, hasn't done anything especially silly this year. That's good. No word about him and Bali on the bye again. With a couple minutes left in the second quarter after McStay took a hanger against Joel Hamling, who played his first game of the season and got disrespected. Inside 50s for the second at that point were 18-2 to two in Collingwood's favor. The final score makes this game sound a bit more respectable than it was. All you need to do is look at the second quarter. Yeah, it, it was over at halftime. Pies were getting intercepts throughout the game pretty steadily as well. Turnover margin wasn't super significant. Dockers only committed six more, but Collingwood profited off of those turnovers a lot more. I, I, as I tweeted out, step one, be the best intercept marking team in the league. Step two. Be the best full oval ball use team in the league. Step three, your Collingwood profit. Combine that with turning center clearances on their head in the second, and that was really it. I guess, other than the players I already mentioned, and the other stats we'll go through, other big positive to come out of this game was Braden Maynard returning and being as physical as ever. His shoulder is clearly fine. Maynard with 20 disposals and 8 tackles. A very in-character game for him. For the Daycost brothers, by the way, Nick kicked 1-2 from 36 disposals, 11 score involvements, 7 clearances, 568 meters. Like that McCain commercial, nothing special. That's a terrible commercial, by the way. Actress who's playing my nan. Josh kicked a goal from 31 and 7 clearances. Jack Crisp had a goal from 25. Taylor Adams facilitated by Solo Degoe's good work, kicking 2-1 from 23 disposals. But as strong on ball as ever as well, nine tackles, seven clearances, and seven marks. Amazingly, I feel like we've underrated Taylor Adams a bit. Maybe because he's been injured a decent amount these past couple years. But even as he's approaching 30, remains one of Collingwood's most effective players. He'll turn 
30 uh, prelim finals week. Another drafting on the Dunning Captain Darcy Moore with 19 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 8 marks. Nothing new. Isaac Quinter with another solid game as that probably best small defender in the league at this point. He belongs in the All-Australian team, and I hope he gets that respect. Well, how tall do you have to be to be considered a small defender? I think under six feet qualifies as small. Okay, because Ed Richards is 6'2", so he wouldn't qualify then. I don't think so. I don't think if Richards is small. Probably helps that he's sometimes standing next to Caelan Daniel. Collingwood for plus 18 on inside 50s. Not nearly as efficient inside 50, but consider the number of entries as a factor in that. March for plus 31 in the Pies' favor and plus 11 contested 16 to 5. That tells a story across the Oval, I think. The list of quality performers for the Dockers is quite short, but Andrew Brayshaw had 30 disposals, 7 clearances, and 7 tackles. Wonder if he was there the night before to see Angus play, or if Angus was there to see him play. Not that often you get him in the same place at the same time. Jager O'Meara, goal off 30 disposals and 10 clearances. He has been a pretty nice addition this season. Neil Erasmus, a behind, 26 disposals and an octopus. Luke Ryan, 23 disposals and 598 meters gained. And Luke Jackson, two goals, a behind, 22 headouts, and 15 disposals. Nothing cheeky about that performance, though, for him. He settled into his role, just his side were completely outdone. And who else were completely outdone, thanks to the new coach boost, in part? St. Kilda. I mean, obviously, the injuries that they suffered last week certainly didn't help. We didn't have a King clash because... Max King injured his shoulder the week prior against Melbourne. They were without Seb Ross, Zane Cordy, Jack Billings, and they looked like a team that were missing a few pieces. Meanwhile, the mighty sun started off the Stephen King caretaker era pretty well. Gold Coast 11-11-77, defeating St. Kilda 8-3-51. St. Kilda didn't score a goal the first, they scored a single point, and that set the tone. Not like a ridiculously well-played game, I'd say, but the Suns did their job. Good for the beginning off stoppages, and this wasn't the game that I had more of a focus on. I was covering more of Collingwood and Frio, but I noticed their Suns' pressure inside 50 being really strong as well. The biggest takeaway I had was that in the first half, the Suns were great on ground balls and great off stoppages, and that's really where they took this game over. That's an area where Ross and Billings could have helped, and Jack Higgins remaining out certainly didn't help. So all the injuries definitely compounded for the Saints, but he did have Zach Jones returning, but he didn't make enough of a difference in this game. No single player would have been able to do that. The Saints did not lose this game this weekend. They lost this game by doing fuck all to build depth in the trade period. Hey, they brought in Zane Cordy. Oh, wait, that's it. And he was out injured, wasn't he? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I can't blame Ross Lyon or much of the current Saints playing group. This is, I mean, all the position that management put them in the offseason. And remember, they had dismissed Ratton just before the trade period, which made their vision even less clear. They did not set themselves up well. That's a reality that I think a lot of Saints, that I think a lot of non-Saints fans are starting to realize now. It was also an unfortunate time for Jack Sinclair and Jack Steele to have lousy games, especially Sinclair. Damn good players are entitled to one or two off games a year. Heck, even like Tom Stewart against Frio a couple months ago had an off game. So that, it happens. What shouldn't have happened was for St. Kilda's forwards to be so unclear on what to do without Max King, considering that they had already played without him early in the season and they were just fine. But this time around, it, 
it was like this enormous absence that hurt him way more than you had in any prior game. Rowan Marshall was able to get forward a decent amount, got involved enough there, but it couldn't just be him. And I guess Higgins being out really hurt there, quieter game from. And Cooper Sharman did all right, filling in as a tall as well, kicking three goals himself. That was the biggest surprise, I think, Sharman having such a strong performance in the forward line. But yeah, this was kind of a lot of the negatives about the Saints were on display. You know, they had 14 points at halftime, 33 of three-quarter time. On the Gold Coast side, obviously, you know, simple game plan is going to be the key when your new coach has just a few days to implement things, and it largely was simple. But the difference, I noticed, was that they had Sam Flanders much more heavily involved. He had a behind off 33 disposals and 523 meters. If you can get, like, I don't know, 60 to 70% of that performance out of Flanders each week, that would add something really nice. And Rory Atkins had a career game with a couple of goals off 32 disposals, eight marks, 716 meters. 122 points for you, right, Ethan? Yes. See, what's frustrating if you're the Suns is like, how come this didn't happen sooner? Yeah. These are, it's not like they were doing anything overly complicated. They were countering well again. I forget who it was. It might have been Noah Anderson interviewed after, like, you know, you could tell the guys had an emotional attachment to Stuart Dew, and, you know, he definitely built up some good connections there, but I, I don't know if he's head coach material. I think he's someone you want to have around just as a morale guy, as someone to build that, like, human connection. I don't know about him as a head coach, and yeah, it's just one game, but it seemed like a pretty significant change just in terms of the Suns actually playing the sum of their talent. Potential for a reality check these next couple weeks playing the Giants in Canberra and then their home queue clash where they tend to disappoint. Hopefully that's not the case again. Yeah, I noticed Flanders having his on-ball role going from center bounces, adding him to the mix there, I guess, helping take some of the heat off Tuke Miller still just a couple weeks into his return from injury. That may have helped things there. Freed up Noah Anderson for more runs. Also, big game out of Jack Vinda Lukosius, another four goals showing. Four goals straight, in fact including the opening goal of the game, a hanger taken on Josh Battle, who after that probably wished he had stayed concussed. Remember, he had been concussed two weeks prior by an Oscar Allen hanger. And he's been the player that I've tagged as really their second most important in the defensive 50 behind Cal Wilkie. I find Lukosius to be such a frustrating player because He's another one. The ceiling is so high, and it's just a matter of getting that consistency out of him. Hopefully, they can finally do that. I, I think it's probably just he is who he is, but there's something for the Suns to build off out of this game, and curious to see what these next few weeks look like as the new coach smell wears off. The fact is, they're not out of this thing, and they're going to face a pretty hot GWS team and a pretty compelling Sunday opener this coming week at a ground where the Giants have struggled. So it's there for them, and it would definitely mess up things for a Giants squad that we'll get into a bit later, helped their case a lot this week. Will Powell, 26 disposals, 13 intercepts, 10 marks, 531 meters gained. Noah Anderson, 1-1 off, 25 disposals. Well, score involvement, 7 clearances, 510 meters. Tuke Miller behind, 25 disposals, 8 marks. Matt Rowell, 22 disposals. Ben Ainsworth, 1-2 off 21 disposals and 9 marks. Jared Witts largely got the better of Marshall, at least in hitouts. He had, uh, as a team, the Suns won hitouts 49-26. Witts 
had 39 of those. He also had 15 disposals and six tackles. One of the best things about the Suns this year has been seeing Wits evolve as someone who can do things outside of hitouts. Like, even if he's not going to get you a goal more than, like, once a month, that he's getting involved as a tackler and figuring out what he can do when he has the ball, turning himself into a pretty dangerous player. Now, the Suns were at 50% efficiency inside 50, whereas the Saints were at a pretty disappointing 27.1, which, again, forwards not knowing what the hell to do without Max King. That was kind of a big part of that. Was expecting more forward time and proper deliveries to Mitch Owens. Didn't see it. Owens himself wasn't an issue. He had a solid game. Yeah, but his play and a lot of others just wasn't properly facilitated. Suns won clearances by 15, including 30 to 19 from stoppage, and they laid 14 more tackles. I find that really disappointing given how the Saints were on the back foot the entire game that they didn't land more than 58 tackles. 28 disposals each for Brad Crouch and Isaiah Wanganeen Miller. That led the Saints together. Isaiah with seven marks and 563 meters as well. He's been one of their steadiest defenders on, I guess, the smaller side. Marcus Windhager with 27 disposals in one of his most involved games of the year. That's a positive that the Saints can take away from this one. Jack Steele with 22 disposals and eight tackles. Cal Wilkie, 22 and 10 marks. And welcome back, Zach Jones, as I mentioned earlier. 21 disposals and a more positive impact on a day where that wasn't the case for a lot of Saints. Here's the good news if you're the Saints. You have North and Hawthorne the next two weeks. Then your final four games are much tougher, especially considering how Carlton are playing now. You're going to be playing under the roof at Marvel for five straight weeks before a trip to the Gabba. You need four more wins to definitely be a finalist. You need three wins to be in decent shape because it's going to be probably 12 or 12 and a half is going to be the cutoff. 13 definitely gets you in. You've got two of those wins right there for you. So as long as you don't fuck up against North or the Hawks, you just got to find a way to beat one of Carlton, Richmond, Geelong, or Brisbane. I just, I don't see it happening. I think most people, when you forecast the results for the rest of the year, have the Saints falling out of the eight, but... They've still exceeded expectations this year, and I think laid a foundation to have to have some success in the next few years. And even if, you know, it's it's possible they go like Carlton and are in the eight every week until the final round, I still won't be like that disappointed in their season because that's the power of expectations. One last thing before the break, as we were recording, we got news of the Rising Star nomination. Congratulations to Judd McVee. With 14 disposals, 17 intercepts, and 5 spoils in Melbourne's win over the Lions. He's been a steady player there in defense since round 1, helping Christian Salem on the smaller side of things. Really supplements him with the carrying role, but can clearly hold his own 1v1 as well. I didn't even think this week was one of his better games. I think this is kind of one of those. Another body of work uh, nomination, but glad he got the recognition. It was one of those, like, let's make sure we have, you know the right 24 guys nominated for the Rising Star Award, and they had an obligation to get McVie into that. Once again, you know the drill. You can find us on Twitter at AmericansFilly. Personally, I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Personally, Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNameGrian. Personally, even though he's a feline. Personally, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. We also have our YouTube at AmericansFilly as well, where some of my run-home predictions have already been proven false, of course, because it's hard to tip 9 out of 9, especially with some of the surprises that happened later on on Saturday, including Carlton 18-14, 122, defeating Port Adelaide 
10, 12, 72. I mean, yes, the power did make six changes, but I thought that they largely made sense, but they just got outplayed. Carlton's movement has been much better these past few weeks. I think they remembered, wait a minute, we don't just have to bomb it into the 50. And I mean, it was tougher to do that once Harry McKay went down with his knee injury. He needs arthroscopic surgery and will be out for the rest of the home and away season. But they had enough contributors all over the Oval. How about four goal games from Jack Silvani and late in Jesse Motlock? The three guys that really have kicked it up for Carlton. Obviously, Motlop is one of them. He was a good candidate for main character of the round because he was about as late and in as it gets, about five minutes before the bounce side to leave, and yeah, four goals all in the first half. Had he kicked one or two more, I would have considered him for like a shoe-in for main character. Then you have Silvani, who at times hasn't even been able to crack the lineup. He was the second rock option behind Tom DeConing, who played a really solid game against Scott Lysette. And then the other guy who I think his season has really kind of mirrored the teams as a whole with the ups and downs at the same time, Mitch McGovern. In this game, he had 21 disposals and nine intercepts. A few weeks ago, Carlton fans were just ripping him. It was like, you know, their defense was Jacob Wietering, Sam Doherty, and nobody else. And now that you've got McGovern going again, it makes the team look a whole lot deeper. Uh, Dylan Williams, first career loss, he's 14-1. and one. Bring back Francis Evans. Carrington, first time in club history that won four straight by at least 50 points. They will add a fifth next week. They are only the third team to ever do this. Geelong did it twice before. I believe it was 89 and 08, both years that Hawthorne actually won the flag. Both years that Hawthorne, in fact, beat Geelong in the grand final. So uh, are we in for the shock of all shocks? where Hawthorne somehow make up 50% and get there? The answer is no. But yeah, I think these last two weeks, even though it was against a dying Fremantle team and an injury-riddled Port team, the way Carlton have played make you think there really has been a breakthrough. Now, I don't know if it's going to be enough to get them into fine. The percent looks good for where they are on the ladder right now. 111.4 in 10th place at 8-8-1. Can they win four more games, though? You take care of West Coast, but then at Collingwood, Saints aren't a freebie. Demons certainly aren't a freebie. At Gold Coast, GWS looks a lot tougher. So if you can go, you assume you beat West Coast and lose to Collingwood. Can they go three and one out of those last four? I think, I think it's going to be tough. I feel like it, it could come down to that last game against the Giants. I feel like the odds of beating... Both the Suns and Giants are not great, even if you take care of the Saints, who, you know, the Saints were overachieving early in the year, as we've said. We've already said our piece on the Saints, but it, it is funny. You compare this to, you know, the position those teams were in the first time they met, which was back in round six, where the Saints won by 22, and it was like, the sky is falling for Carlton. And the Saints at that point were 5-1, and one, I believe? Uh, yeah, that was the Anzac round. Just had to look back because I remembered it was something significant. That's that's what it was. And yeah, I think I would put the Blues odds of playing finals probably in like, I'd say 30%. I'd say 30 to 40, but that's a hell of a lot higher than it was just a couple of weeks ago. Higher than the Suns. If you had told me, wait, three, four rounds ago that we would say the Blues have a chance to make finals 
and Frio doesn't, I would have thought, no fucking way. Well, this is the timeline in which we find ourselves. Blue's pressure was high from the beginning. They were winning pretty much every ground ball and rebounding well from those in defense. The only time Port ended up getting some good strings going was when they were able to hit a couple contested marks in a row. But their defensive problems were clear. We were wondering when their lack of fallback depth was going to catch up to them. And sadly, it did with Tom Jonas back in. He got exposed out the back a couple times. Blues were able to create far too many goals just off the back of that deepest pack. That was how Silvani got a couple of his. I think there were two at the start of quarters that he got that way. Two of his four. Charlie Curnow, 3-3. You know, not an amazing game accuracy-wise, but he's getting back to just creating those chances and being on the receiving end of good sequences that have given him and the other forwards opportunities. Like, a lot of what the Blues are doing reminds me of how they played at the start of last season in terms of the speed. Like, I think the pressure's better than it was then. The pressure's better, and they're just looking for more goal-kicking options. It's going to be required with Makai out, but it's something they needed to be doing all along. And instead of bombing it into the forward 50, this the only way you're going to be able to reliably beat teams by bombing it into 50 is, is if those teams just don't have a tall enough and physical defense to be able to match up like that. Essendon. Yeah, I was going to say that's the type of team you could do it against. But I think Carlton have realized like, yeah, we want to get the ball to our forwards as quickly as possible. But the most efficient way to do that isn't bombing it to them. It's often quick handball sequences that we've seen Sam Walsh handballing much more again, which has helped from there. Cripps and Walsh playing well off center clearances. Cripps getting 24 disposals and 12 contested possessions, 11 score involvements, 10 clearances and seven tackles. Not as accurate in front of goal kicking one three, but that's not where he's going to be excelling usually. And Walsh with 23 disposals and 10 score involvements. So it just feels like we've been calling for something like this for so long. And Voss has finally woken up to it. These are things that feel like they should have happened a long time ago. And had they happened a little while before this, we could be talking about them as a legitimate finals contender. You know, the things that were going wrong before for the Blues weren't just like style of play things. It was... You know, the top guys were fine, and then there was just no depth. And even of those top guys, like, Cripps had been subpar. So it's it's a combination of playing a better style and the actual performances being better. You know, there's it's more than just one thing, clearly. But it feels like at least a handful of these things could have been done much sooner, right? Yeah, as I said, we had been calling for it. I've been also keen on the performance of my Blues sleeper pick the past few weeks, that being Nick Hello Newman. Hello, Newman. And he had maybe his most impactful game of the season, working from defense with a couple really key intercepts and balls back into the 50. Newman with a late goal, 23 disposals, 9 tackles, and 555 meters. He's starting off their best sequences from the back half that go by foot rather than by hand. Continuing with some Blues stats, Sam Doherty led the disposal count with 26. Blake Gakers with 24, 8 marks and 567 meters gained. It was a comprehensive victory all over the ground. That included all the wings where I thought they would get some decent opportunities, and they did. Kernow's complete stat line kicked 3-3 from 15 disposals, 11 marks and 10 contested possessions. Took a lot of tougher marks. You knew that he would be getting some more attention in the air once Mackay went down. Ali earlier switched on to him, and... Kernos still managed to win that matchup enough, even though Alir had nine intercepts himself. Efficiency inside 50, 
55.9% for the Blues to Ports 45.2. For some reason, it feels weird that Ports was that high, even though they did get 22 scoring shots. And is this right? Hitouts plus 12 to the Blues, 44 to 32? Yeah, it has to be because Dakota had 33 himself. Scott Lysette quieted by Tom Dakota. Dan Houston, 41 disposals, 9 intercepts, 9 marks, 661 meters. You know, some of those numbers inflated because of how often the power had to come out of their own 50. Honor Rosie, 2 goals in the behind off 28 disposals. Willem Drew, 27 with 7 tackles. Ollie Wines, 23 with 7 tackles. Xavier Dersma, making his return. Yeah, had his PCL injury round 7 at the same venue. 22 disposals and 8 marks. Quieter game for Alir Alir. He had his nine intercepts, but not a huge showing overall. Uh, Geelong, 18-14-122, defeating Essendon, 7-3-45. God damn. Uh, yeah. I picked the right game to watch. Or really, it kind of fell into my lap. Kind of. It fell into my lap that I was covering the other game. I mean, this, this was a great one for you. I mean, 12 scoring shots to one of the first quarter. Seven goals to a point. Brian Myers taking the opening goal in his hundred after all the weird media stuff leading up to this. I gotta say, it is so cool when a meme about your favorite player takes like all of Australia by storm. And Storm, was that a pun because Brian's got a dog named Storm or no? That was completely unintentional. But he does. I, I ordered the shirt from Carlton Draft. It's on its way. I really hope it gets here before I leave town. Now, that's unlikely, considering it has to go through customs and everything. Considering it's international, but don't worry. I will not open it up. I'll let Grind Harambe do that. I would just love to have it in, like, other parts of the country and see if anyone recognizes any element of it. Well, bring your other uh, Carlton Draft shirt. Oh, yeah. That's definitely coming. Are you going to bring, like, your uh, your Geelong baseball jersey as well? Ooh. I mean. Look, it's a, it's a baseball trip. You might as well. Yeah, it's just with the way the weather's going to be more layers of clothing, even if it's a very light one, not great. He's going to be in the Southeast, by the way. Uh, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia. Going to hit another couple states as well while he's around there because he collects counties. Yeah, and because, I mean, like trying to visit all 50 states is a thing for a lot of people, and I'll be up to 44 when this is done with. Do you have any more states you're expecting to hit next year? Next year, I can think of at least three more. So at worst, I'll be at 47 at the end of 2024. Anyway, which would be the contiguous states you haven't visited? Louisiana and Oklahoma, because he's been to Hawaii. Anyway, as for the actual game, I correctly predicted that Essendon weren't going to get overwhelmed physically like last time. They just got overwhelmed in every other way. And I mean, they did get overwhelmed physically in the back because they lack a key defender with Zach Reed out definitely hurting Nick Cox being near the end of things. Uh, Hawkins did his thing again, kicking 5-3. So he's kicked, I think, 45 goals on the season and 13 of those have come against Essendon. He's got 27 in his last five games against the Bombers. But it was really, you know, in the midfield, you look at last year's meeting back in round one and you look at the earlier meeting this year. But instead, it was the turnovers and points off turnovers where they really won this game. This game was so lopsided off turnovers. 
There was one of the Caps' first 32 points were off turnovers. I believe all seven of their first quarter goals came off turnover. The goal with less than three minutes left in the game by Tyson Stengel, his third of the night, was the Caps' second goal from stoppage. This is usually a team that's great from stoppage clearances, and instead it was just turnover after turnover, some of which were good defensive plays, and some of which were just really bad, undisciplined, unforced errors from the Bombers. Yes, turnovers were only 82 to 70, but it was that so many of those 82 led to massive chances the other way. On the individual side, I thought Jack Henry played a great first quarter. He was kind of in the shadows after that, but I really liked the way he started the game. Oh, he's had three pretty early intercept marks, I believe. Mark Blitzovs, as usual, goes way beyond with the stats show. I mean, he had 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 8 hitouts. That's normal. Uh, the two goals are not so normal. I mean, if he's kicking accurately, because he hit tougher shots in this game, if he's doing that, he really has no flaw in his game. I mean, when he gets kicks toward goal, in the past few years, he's been more accurate. This year, he's 12-6 uh, thus far. Is 12 a career high in goals for him? It ties his career high from 2017 when he kicked 12-5. I'm really glad he shows football, but I'd be interested to see him compete in other sports because he's such a good overall athlete that I'm sure, like, if he got comfortable on ice skates, he could play in the NHL. If I mean, he could play in the NFL, and not just as a punter, he could play a lot of different positions. He could probably play basketball. I, I'd say I'd like to see him on the baseball field, but I don't know if he was, people would look very silly against the Joe Underhead splitter. So, oh, it's, it's an extremely specialized skill set that baseball requires. You mentioned this earlier, how, you know, the buffest guy in the locker room is the one that's hitting like 215. Yeah. So I'm going to go on a tangent here real quick. There's that, you know, sometimes people ask like, you know, which is the hardest to do score a touchdown in the NFL, make a basket in the NBA, score a goal in the NHL, or hit a home run in major league baseball. Home run is by far the hardest followed by NHL followed by NBA, because if you're just looked at as a player instead of like, you know, this is a scrub and we can't let him score a single point. You can cherry pick and eventually get a layup. And the easiest would be the NFL touchdown because no requirement on how long the touchdown has to be. It could be a one yard quarterback sneak. You could just be a vulture. Now, if you had to catch a touchdown, that's different. There we go. Yeah. If you had to score a touchdown, not as a quarterback or running back in like a, you know, first, you know, like a one yard situation, the only way that could ever work is like one of your teammates blocks a punt and it takes a crazy bounce and you pick it up and you're already in the end zone. By the way, you're going off on this whole multi-sport thing with Mark Blitzaz. You're talking about all the, the sports he could be able to play and we're forgetting that he's a former steeplechaser. Trust me, that's not forgotten. That's never forgotten. I was surprised you hadn't mentioned it, though. Like, of course he's a versatile athlete. Look at what he's done in the past. Other things that I took away from this game, Zach Guthrie was really smooth. And that's just been something that, you know, he's still not a perfect player, but he's gotten better and better each week. Uh, Isaac Smith, after being managed a week ago, just did an incredible job finding space and being able to, you know, he gave himself chances to take a lot of uncontested marks. He ended up with 22 disposals, eight marks, kicked a couple behinds, gained 558 meters, but like you could outlet to him in an open area and then 
he'd send it back into a crowded area with a good kick. I really liked his game, and I'm surprised that Essendon weren't able to do anything to kind of kind of limit him. And then I guess the matchup for Grian was Mason Redmond, and he handled Redmond pretty well. Just also, he managed to duck under him after getting a handball that Redmond had turned over for that goal he had and finished it on the outside of the boot. I, I just loved that after everything that happened this week, the assistant got the first goal. And he did get some assist. Two yeah. of them. So it has got a couple more. There were, you know, Cats left a few points out there, especially in the first quarter. And then, so he now has 30 on the year. Yeah, could easily have more than that. Let's see. Smith did have a point blank miss. That wasn't free, right? I think it was, I think Jeremy Cameron missed a potential assist. And I think Ollie Henry might have missed one as well. But it was hardly an issue. Uh, also, Jake Kelly was totally outdone by Tyson Stengel. Past couple weeks, Stengel's been able to get back and forth. He expected that North would be a great time for him to be targeted a bit more than he was. He kicked five then and three this past Saturday. Very few positive Essendon observations. Really, it's just not dead Ben. Ben Hobbs was good. He was physical. He embraced the elements of the contest he needed to. He's been getting a lot of praise these past few weeks as he's been getting steadier midfield time. That started as a bit more of a forward under Ben Rutten, but that physicality is much needed in the midfield. It can open up opportunities most of the time for Zach Merritt and Darcy Parrish. Definitely, you know, wasn't nearly as on display this past game because, well, Essendon weren't on display. The, the most they were on display, I guess, was for Zach Merritt's guard of honor after his 200th game, and DeLong did stay on the oval for that. And okay, it's a lot easier to do that after you win. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the most important part about that is Kane Cord's going ballistic when he's kind of in a glass house there, considering his 300th and final game. I'm like, 200 is in that gray area. It's like 250, guys, you have one 300, you definitely do. 200 for one of the most important players in one of the roughest eras for your club, three-time best and fairest. I can understand it. I could go either way. I don't think it's something to get worked up over. Unless you're Kane Corns. The question is, how much does Kane believe what he says? I don't know. I think, I think he knows how to play the crowd. Oh, he definitely does. He's a very, it's a very American type thing that he's doing. I thought Nick Martin wasn't very good. He did end up with 23 disposals, but I feel like, you know, if you're not able to get the ball out to the wing, you gotta just come to the middle of the ground. And he didn't really do a ton of that. It was funny have, seeing Essendon struggle with the idea of playing on a ground that's a bit of a different shape. Uh, Archie Perkins, who's been a really nice piece for most of the year, he did not handle pressure well in this game, especially you know along the boundary. I don't think he was used to operating with less space there. And then, unfortunately, you know, at times I've said, yes, yeah, Sam Wiedemann's done some things to make himself useful when he hasn't been able to score. He was unplayable in this game, and I would be shocked if he's in the lineup this coming week against the Dogs. He was not good. At all. Bad fumbles. Bad everything. Giving away freeze. You name it. Beaten in marking contests. Patrick Voss should be debuting next week. Max Holmes with 33 disposals. That That is, of course, a career high for him. Collingwood, stay the fuck away. He is mine. Eight marks and 659 meters. Tom Atkins put up a Tom Liberatore type line. 28 disposals. 16 contested possessions, 12 tackles, and 9 clearances. You know, this is a team that's needed midfielders to step up in terms of both clearances and contested possessions, and in this game, he was that guy. Ryan with a goal of behind, 26 disposals, 10 score involvements in those two assists. 
Zach Guthrie had his behind, 24 disposals and 474 meters. Mitch Duncan, 21 disposals. Tom Stewart, who is just so unbelievably consistent. Like, he's had, what, one bad game in three years? 18 disposals, 9 interceptions, and 8 marks. And in addition to kicking 5-3, Tom Hawkins had 16 disposals and 8 marks. I, I feel bad for Brandon Zerk Thatcher. Like, he, he's been hung out to dry so often because... He's the closest thing to a key defender that Essendon had, and he's not close to that at all. They need to target that in the trade period and the draft. I mean, I don't think Ben McKay is going to be a worthwhile solution at this point because of his form, but maybe he's just done with being at North and will get revived once he plays for a competitive side. I, I think that could be part of it. Um, He was... um Adam Cornell suggested the idea of McKay coming over, and I mean, I think... He's obviously the right body type, and at, at the very least, even if he's not great there, he probably holds Stewart below five goals, and then it opens up Zerk Thatcher to play his role, and just, there's a domino effect there that's much needed. I, I still think for now the best thing to do would be just throw Kyle Langford back there, but yeah, it's it's one of the obvious holes with this team. Uh, the good news for Essendon is that their schedule is still quite favorable, and I think they're still in pretty good position to make the eight. That home game against the Swans round 20 does not look as tough as before. But they do have, right after that, West Coast and North, which definitely alleviates some pressure on them. That round 23 clash against the Giants at the showground should be a good one. And closing against Collingwood's tough, but I think they've already done enough work, especially if they manage to bounce back and win this Friday against the Dogs again. That is such a high-profile round opener. And I'm glad that Friday Night Footy is on Fox Sports 2 here because any people who are crazy enough to be up at that hour to watch sports like us will get a good show. Essendon have two very, very likely wins to pull them up to 11. So then really you just got to win two of the other four, if that. I mean, or percentage against North and West Coast could be really critical for them because right now of the teams at 36 points, they have the third best percentage out of the four, but it's all pretty tight. Um, the best of those percentages is just 104.3. They're at 101.2, and then you got the Giants down at 99.4. Geelong were plus 36 on inside 50, 64 to 28, and that doesn't even tell the story because it was 95 to 26 after three quarters. I mean, part of what tells the story is Essendon's 39.3% efficiency inside 50 on the minimal chances they had. Subpar, not horrible, but subpar. If you can't crack 40, yeah, that is subpar. Geelong at 53.1%. You get efficiency above 50%. You're winning those games pretty often. I should have checked what those numbers were at halftime because it was definitely much more lopsided. I remember some sequences in the second half with a lot of forward time that didn't result in scores. So that's probably what watered down those numbers a bit. Cats were plus 25 in marks and plus 13 in marks inside 50, 18 to 5. Contested marks for 15 to 4. I continue to feel bad for Brandon Zerk Thatcher. And for Jane Laverde as well, who had to exit the game after a lower leg injury. Zach Merritt kind of careened Gary Rowan into him, and then Merritt collided with Laverde as well. So you had Jordan Ridley getting hurt last week, Laverde this weekend, no key defender. If there's anything that will be Essendon's undoing, if they don't even make the eight, it's going to be defensive issues that are why, I think. 
and not replacing Sam Wiedemann. Leading disposal getters for the Bombers, unsurprisingly, in defense, Dyson Heppel with 25, Andrew McGrath with 23, seven marks and 542 meters gained, Mason Redmond with 22, Laverde in his limited time with 16 and nine intercepts. Out of the midfielders and forwards, Darcy Parrish had 24, 13 contested possessions and nine tackles. Sounds more and more like he will be staying with the Bombers. Ben Hobbs with 23 and 12 contested, and Merritt with 18 and 7 clearances. But uh, going on at that same time, and starting 15 minutes later, ending about 15 later as well, was probably the best game of Saturday. Adelaide 8-9-57, defeated by Greater Western Sydney 10-11-71. The Giants going 5 goals to none in Adelaide to come back and win. Just another gutsy win for Adam Kingsley's side. That puts them over the win total they had last year in five fewer games. This was a team that was supposed to be bottom four or five, if not bottom three. And then our perception changed to, all right, they're clearly better than the worst three. They're probably like 15th now. Could they be a finalist? Still need some help with percentage, obviously. Still below 100, but they're there in ninth. They're nine and eight. If they win four of their final six, it will be hard to see them not playing finals. Their road home, by the way, the Suns in Canberra. Can they get over their own Canberra troubles? That's a big question. The Dogs in Ballarat. Sydney Derby 26 at home. Please show up for a home Sydney Derby. It's your first Sydney Derby at the showground in four years. I feel like that game's got to draw well. Between, I, I don't know what the, crowd split is going to be, but I feel like at worst, it's going to be two-thirds swans at least. At worst, they'll have like 22,000. I mean, that's what the place holds, right? I thought it was more like 25. Anyway, it, it should sell out is the point. Yeah, it, it should. But it won't. It won't. At most, there should be like 3,000 empty seats. It's a nighttime game, which is good, I think. They go to Port round 22 and then finish hosting Essendon and at Carlton. That, that could be a make-or-break game for both sides round 24 there. Could that be a Sunday game in round 24, the Blues and the Giants? I would love for GWS to be able to get revenge. It sucks that, you know, it could be poor umpiring from that first game against Carlton that is keeping them out of finals. I mean, they should have never been in that game in the first place, but we're going to be paying a lot of attention to the Giants because you look at their final six games, you see one that you'd be shocked if they won, and the other five... All question marks, all kind of yellow lights. I'd put their odds of beating the Bulldogs below 50%. I'd say it's probably their second lowest. But other than that, I mean, some of these games are basically coin flips, and it's going to be fun. Their back line is a lot healthier. Now you can see the importance of Sam Taylor. Taylor Walker got some wins on him early. They were talking a lot about that Taylor versus Taylor matchup. But Sam won really in the final three quarters and let a really great effort from the backs. Didn't come off the ground, 100% time on ground, 21 disposals, 14 contested possessions. I mean, is he just flat out the best defender in the league? I'm still very biased towards Tom Stewart, but he's right up there with him. Taylor's in that conversation. And then, and then, I mean, Harris Andrews has been great this year. Darcy Moore is a center halfback as well. If you're talking one-on-one, though, I'd say Taylor and Stewart. I think so. There was a kind of defensive and midfield out that I was worried about for the Giants with Finn Callahan, who had played so solidly as a halfback flank and wing, being uh, laid out with a hip injury. Aaron Cadman was definitely not like for like. I was surprised that Josh Faye remained 
the sub, but Faye had a had an important late goal. That brought it back out to nine points with under six minutes left. So I had been keeping an eye on this game as kind of secondary entertainment to the Geelong bloodbath. Yeah, not e- not even secondary. I and then like, you know, second half in the Cats game I watched more of it, but when the game ended, it was right around when the fourth quarter of this one was starting, and I was totally locked in on Geelong post-game coverage because I wanted to see what they would do with Ryan for his 100th game. There were some Argentina flags in the crowd. That's that's about the extent of it. And then you know, it was talked about with Seven. More more on that later. But I checked back in. was like, wait, GWS have gone from down three goals to up eight points. What, what happened? So I have not really watched much of this game closely. I did see like the... Final couple of minutes, the late Daniel Lloyd icing on the cake goal, kind of like the last probably three to four minutes. But what happened from the time the third quarter ended with Adelaide up 56-39 to the Giants taking a 65-57 lead? What the hell happened? Well, firstly, I thought that despite taking a lead into halftime and limiting the Giants to two points in the second quarter, that the Crows missed a lot of opportunities. Really, it was Jordan Dawson standing out in the second quarter and that was about it, despite the Crows controlling enough of the ball there. And even third quarter, both sides scoring 2-3 for 15. Adelaide were winning center clearances in the third quarter, but despite that, it was the Giants who were controlling possession through the midfield and getting more entries. They had nine of the first 10 inside 50s in the third. And so that was something off which they could definitely build. And that definitely continued in the fourth quarter. I thought the Crows could have stabilized a bit at the start of the fourth when Rory Laird came back on. He had had some left shoulder trouble after an injury with Harry Perryman. Perryman was a focus in really the physicality and the banter for this game, if you will. Just a bit of banter. He'd been tussling with Josh Rochelle in the second quarter, and Rochelle ended up punching him and getting two weeks for that. Yeah, it wasn't like just to the chest. It was to the face. It was deserved. Crows accepted the suspension. Yeah, that's done, but uh, the Tribunal will deliberate on some other matters this week. So uh, you can still get the schnitz, David Zeta. In my opinion, Adelaide's pressure increased too late in this one, and GWS were able to work through it a decent amount, but I don't think they were on the ball enough once they won those clearances, and so that allowed the ball to come back to Greater Western Sydney, go back inside 50. Toby Green definitely elevated in the last quarter. On a rebound 50 early on, he took a crumb and put a don't argue on Max Michelini before snapping. Michelini had done a good job neutralizing Green for a decent amount of the game before that. A big assignment for a first-year player, but he'd done well. I'd say maybe the best 1v1 action that the Crows had had all night. The Crows got another clearance a couple minutes later, but Isaac Cumming was able to get onto the kick, and Josh Kelly kicked from 50. It was a much better game from Kelly getting back into things and working through a tag. He had been tagged the previous week by Finn McGinnis. I was surprised, though, he didn't get the tag right away in this one, and I was wondering if that was going to end up biting the Crows, and I guess it did. Initially, it was Chase Jones playing on him, and I was when they decided to have a closer matchup for and I was wondering, why is Ben Keyes not there? Is Keyes playing on somebody else? Nope, they were just having Keyes play more loosely, and lesson learned, Matthew Nix. Kelly had that goal, 28 disposals, 21 contested possessions, and 9 clearances. Phenomenal performance working through Keyes, who can be a difficult matchup at times, but made him look silly a lot. And Keyes had been really good in the prior couple of weeks. As a tagger, some of his deliveries into the forward half are still 
not great. And that was something that was highlighted by a number of fans. The Giants are a stupidly good rogue team. They've won their last three away meetings with the Crows. They won their last three trips to Cardinia Park. They've won their last four away meetings with the Suns. They won up at Alice Springs this year. Maybe some of it's that, you know, they don't really have much of a home field advantage from crowd. So maybe they're maybe they're just used to it. And it's kind of sad if so, but it's working for them. I will say the GWS fans that do show up when they're at home make a lot more noise than a crowd of that size should. That seems to be like the general perception around the league. So let's hope they're able to show good numbers when they play there again in, well, three weeks' time, and they ought to for Sydney Derby. There's no excuse for Sydney Derby. Canberra, you know they'll draw well for that venue because it's Canberra and you've got the Tom Green fan club. But I played a bit of a guessing game with you, Ethan, because you weren't focusing on this game. I decided to ask you, who do you think kicked the game-winning goal for the Giants? And I gave you a few guesses, and you did not come up with the answer of Harry Hemmelberg. That's his second game-winning goal of the year. I mean, this one did come a few minutes earlier. It was actually just under 11 minutes left. And, you know, he, he didn't then go and spoil a kick at the other end. But no, he, he kind of did a Mason Redmond for this one, where just ran from his defensive position to get a handball and kick a, a long-running goal. It was Jesse Hogan that actually gave it up to him. And I was like kind of scared when I saw Hogan was the one who marked it, wondering, okay, how badly is this kick going to go? Wait, he's not kicking it. Wait, it's Himmelberg. That's brilliant. Himmelberg has played in defense most of the past few months and it's worked for the Giants, but I love seeing him get his goal scoring moments like that because he remains a very accurate full field kick. And that includes with his goal kicking. He was one of the earlier players we recognized, mostly because of his name. And it's really cool that he's returned to form and done so in a role that we would have never forecasted. Especially as, again, their defense gets healthier, but he remains part of that group. This game should cement Adam Kingsley as coach of the year. With lots of respect for the job Ken Hinckley has done. With- Unless Hinckley wins a flag, Kingsley's coach of the year. I am so impressed. Game. To hold the Crows to 57 in their own building. To come back with five goals to none in the fourth quarter at the Adelaide Oval. I guess we need to ask Swamp when the last time the club has come back with a you know a five-goal margin, the last in Adelaide, to win. Because that just doesn't happen there against either side that plays there. So you had that Faye goal that I mentioned with six minutes left. I feel like he could be become a real cult hero for them with the long sleeves and everything. Crows missed a couple chances when Reichen got a forward turnover but hit the post, and Keys kicked out on the full. Then Reagan collided with Lockheed Murphy in the 450. It just did not look like a game the Crows were going to win with all the struggles they had, getting up the field and getting off quality shots. And then he had that last goal at the end where Toby Green set up Dan Lloyd. So Giants still obviously need help with percentage, but this is not a game that I'd expected them to win at all. And the Crows are definitely behind the eight ball now at eight and nine. And it isn't easy for them down the stretch. They've still got an... They face the D's on the road this week. Then they get their home showdown. They host the Suns. They're at the Gabba. They host the Swans. They visit the Eagles. They're going to need to win at least four of their remaining games. Probably five. I They're not dead, but I would say the odds of them making finals is... It's dependent on a showdown win. They're going to have to A, do that, and slash or go out and pick up a legit road win over the D's 
or the Lions. I read off Josh Kelly's line already as we get into the stats for the Giants. This was game 200 for Lockie Whitfield. It had been delayed by suspension, but he had 28 disposals and was influential going from the back once again. Stephen Canelio with 23, nine tackles, and at least one sentient eyebrow. Harry Perryman with 22 and 12 contested possessions. He was not much more than just somebody who got a lot of attention from the opposition. That attention was warranted in the passage of play. And Toby Green kicked three goals from 20 disposals, 10 contested possessions, and 591 meters gained. I think him getting the sole captaincy has definitely led him to be more disciplined and a more complete player. The Crowley did win hitouts by 15, 52 to 37, but it wasn't as if Riley O'Brien totally outplayed Kira Griggs or anything. Rory Laird, despite battling some bumps and bruises, a goal, 33 disposals, 11 tackles. Jordan Dawson, two behinds, 27 disposals, seven marks, seven tackles, 535 meters gained. Brody Smith, 27 disposals, and 807 meters gained. Mitch Hinge, 25 disposals. Wade Miller, a 21. And Chase Jones, a goal off 20 disposals, 14 contested possessions. Jones has been a season-long positive for the Crows since he came in. I believe his first game was Showdown. And he's just established himself as a player that deserves a week-in and week-out spot. Speaking of established, have you heard of our fake sponsor, Noted Scam Established Titles? Oh, that was fun. A lot of YouTubers that we watch ended up falling for them, didn't they? Yeah, most of them were good about, like, coming out and saying, yeah, I was duped, we've been smackled, or that's not even a word, and I agree with you. All right, uh, we're going to probably be able to roll through these last two games pretty quickly on Seems Like a Good Time to Make Other Plans Sunday. Yeah, which I think lived up to the billing. I did make other plans, so I did at least watch the majority of both of these games. North Melbourne, 6-4-40, defeated by Hawthorne, 12-16-88. This was only close-ish because Hawthorne kicked 3-13 in the first half. Yikes. But they made up for it. They kicked 5-1 in the third quarter and 4-2 in the fourth to pull away. Just, you know, you can kind of recycle what we've said about North Melbourne for a while. Just they don't have defensive resistance. And Ben McKay, A, isn't enough on his own. And B, maybe checked out. And C, is probably dealing with that knee injury that requires arthroscopic surgery. And was courageous to play through it. So all of that combined definitely weighed on North and then they lost George Wardlaw to a hamstring injury earlier on. He's out for three weeks, so one of the few positives for them went away then. I just want Brett Bratton to enjoy one win, and I don't know if he's going to get a chance to do that. I really don't know. I was so frustrated with Hawthorne not putting away this game in the first quarter. 25-4 to four inside 50s, 13-5 to five clearances. They just could not kick straight to save their souls. 25 inside 50s in the first order? Yes. Shit. Yep. Like, that. that's a decent number of inside 50s for a half. The AFL average is right around 50 for a game, Ethan. And for the game, they ended up getting 70 to North's 41. All right, so outside of the first quarter, it was pretty much closer to average. It was even in the second quarter, and North keeping an extra man back in defense after that helped with that. Help contain things. Mackay was able to play more naturally after that, and they were able to move from defense a bit better. But Hawthorne also did a lot of damage to start the third quarter, had the first six marks inside 50 then. Really good games out of Connor McDonald and Carl Amon. 
And in defense, who limited Nick Larkey to one goal? Sam fucking Frost. I mean, the delivery into 50 was not spectacular at all. I mean, quite frankly, it was terrible. Inside 50 efficiency for North was 22%. Hawthorne at 37.1 is nothing to write home about either, but it looks a lot better when you put it against the perspective of how poorly North were going. But yeah, Frost with one of his better defensive games on one of the toughest mashups in the league. I wasn't watching this game very closely. Was like the level play noticeably weaker than most other games? It felt like a bottom three matchup because of the inaccuracy in the front of goal. After that, it felt like a bottom six matchup, maybe, but not necessarily bottom three. You could tell it was a tick below. You could tell that they were young sides with, you know, the players that were struggling to get the ball. Despite battling some injury, Liam Shields was the most aggressive player for Northwood. I like that he was leading that way. He knew that he'd come out hard to play against his old side again, but it was a much more complete game for Hawthorne. And I was so frustrated that North, amid all the changes they made, did not bring Todd Goldstein back in because their talls were hardly noticeable. You know, I like Callum Coleman-Jones. I want Tristan Cherry to succeed, but it's not working right now. I will say this. If there's a game to not play the vets and let the kids play, it's this one in West Coast. Honestly, is that the case or do you actually want to win? I mean, I don't know if Goldstein alone would have been enough to make up that gap and would have helped. I don't think it would have helped that much. I don't think it would have done it on its own, but Goldstein's taps were made effective. Then Reeves had a couple nice ones. I will say that. I had mentioned it was one of Carl Amon's best games. It may have been his most effective game for Hawthorne to date. A goal from 33 disposals at 813 meters. He is a good long kick. And there were a lot of them at Port when he was there and still, so maybe we didn't notice it as much then, but it's definitely a big part of his game that, that we can really look at and say good things about now. Jai Nuka with a behind from 33 disposals, nine score involvements and seven clearances. Connor Nash, 32 and nine score involvements. Lionel Messi's friend, James Warple, kicking 1-3 from 32, 10 score involvements, seven clearances, 702 meters. Will Day with 28 and seven tackles. Josh Ward, 28 as well. Connor McDonald kicking 1-1 one, one from 27, and I guess I should have had him in my team this week for fantasy because he would have gotten me 30 or 40 more points than my other options. I did win, though. Dylan Moore with 27. Jarman Impey kicking 1-2 from 24 and 601 meters. A nice bounce-back game from him, considering he had been subbed off the previous week and was pretty darn ineffective. And credit also to Finn McGinnis. When he was switched on to Harry Sheasel, for some reason he started against Taron Thomas and not Luke Davies Uniac. I, I don't get that at all. Was the plan maybe to have Nash play Davies Uniac more closely? I'm not sure, but McGinnis definitely quieted Sheasel because he'd gotten around 25 disposals in the first half and was very, very quiet in the second. North laid 21 more tackles, but also committed 18 more turnovers. Interesting representation of kind of different play styles. Hawthorne with 68 more handballs. Also reflects some possession time, obviously. Bailey Scott led North with 34 disposals. He had 8 marks, gained 796 meters. Sheasel finished with 30 disposals and 524 meters. Aiden Core 27 disposals. Liam Shields, 22 disposals and an octopus. Luke Davies Uniac, probably the best midfielder, maybe for either team, definitely by ranking points. A goal, 26 disposals, 10 marks and 9 tackles. I'd put Davies Uniac right up there with Newcomb. Definitely looked to be a pressure leader as well, which I enjoy along with Shields, but it just wasn't there. 
West Coast, 8-12-60, defeated by Richmond, 14-14-98. Tigers really pull away after an inaccurate first quarter. They get 2-6, ended up going into halftime up by 22, and then only led by 29 after three, but it really stretched things out. At one point, the lead was, actually, it was 42 at a couple of times, looks like, going through your summary. You didn't watch this that closely either. I get it. You were I had it on. You know, it, it wasn't your main interest, though. No, I was more interested in, like, Wordle. I, you were probably, like, playing cards or something like that, too. No, I was I was back home. I was just sitting here. But I was, I was also kind of, like, half asleep. I would have been a lot more asleep had this not been an Eagles game. But yeah, Richmond were clearly winning this game for a while. Eagles did get the first goal from Bailey J. Williams, and I thought, savor this lead, and was correct to fake that. Ruben Jinby did his left hamstring on, I think, a kick? In the first quarter, and the soft tissue issues continue to pile up for the Eagles. Tissue issues is fun to say, but it's no laughing matter. And that external review into the strength and conditioning and the medical staff is desperately needed because it's not just the old guys who are seeing these problems. What else did I notice? Um, well, for the let me just get the Eagles positives out of the way. Oscar Allen hurt his shoulder second quarter. Managed to come back and kick three goals in the second half, so the streak will not die. Another high-effort game from Tim Kelly, which we've come to expect. Andrew Gaff was wanting to get a lot of the ball. Uh, probably wanted to prove himself when he was demoted to the sub-role. Don't know what to think about his 24 disposal game, really. It was very up and down. But it was the Tigers' day from the beginning, really, and Daniel Rioli had one of his most efficient games 31 disposals, 556 meters, and I believe all 17 of his kicks were efficient. I believe Will Schofield mentioned that in the post-game interview. His transformation into this rock-solid halfback has been really fun to watch these past few years. And other than being beaten by Allen a few times in the second half, it was a solid game from Noah Balta as well. We've been really critical of him early on in the year, and he's found his form again. With Richmond having some issues in the back line with injuries, Robbie Tarrant not being able to play and ultimately retiring, Josh Givkiss not getting a game yet this year, he's had to step up, and it's not surprising that his uptick in form has reflected on their overall defensive performance. And really, the only other notable thing was Jack Darling kicking his 500th goal. Third eagle to hit that milestone after Peter Sumich and Josh Kennedy. Tim Taranto a goal, 27 disposals, 8 clearances, 8 tackles. That goal came kind of during Richmond's onslaught to take control. Jacob Hawker, 25 disposals, 7 clearances, 7 tackles. Shea Bolton struggled with accuracy, kicking 2-4, but had 23 disposals. Dustin Martin also with 23. He kicked 2-2, 8 marks, 483 meters. I guess 2-2 could be a ballerina. That's a, that's a new stat joke thing, like an octopus, but Jalog also took to the octopus thing themselves. Yes, it spreads because Tom Atkins had 10 tackles. Actually, he had more than that, I believe. What do you have, 12? Yeah, he had 12. Yay, I remembered something about a game I didn't watch nearly as closely. Dion Prestia, a goal, 21 disposals, 496 meters. Noah Balta, 17 disposals, 12 intercepts, 550 meters. And one of the guys who got a lot of praise in this game, Yvonne Soldo, 41 hitouts, 11 disposals, a goal and a behind. Yeah, and a couple of weeks without Toby Nankurgis, so if he can keep it up, look, he's got another good opportunity against Hawthorne. 
And he's auditioning for a job, whether it's at Richmond or elsewhere, because Samson Ryan will continue to get some more backup ruck time once Dan Curvis is back in. And he'll definitely take some of those forward contests. So this these are a big few weeks for Soldo. And I'm glad he played up to it in this game, even if it was at the Eagles' expense. Hitouts were plus 33 to Richmond, 59 to 26. Richmond had two-thirds disposal efficiency inside 50, which is pretty ridiculous. The Eagles at 46%, not terrible, but you can't give that up, 67%. Dom Sheen at 28 disposals, Tim Kelly 27 and 549. Tom Cole 20 and 8 marks in his first full game since his injury. Glad he's gotten back okay. Want to see more out of defense in general. Glad Brady Hoff is staying involved. I just, I want to see another winner two this year. As much as Harley Reid could help, one player will not solve this problem. And who knows if your percentage is probably bad enough that you can afford another win. Exactly so. Even more a reason that I want them to get their revenge against North. And with those North injuries, forgot to mention earlier, Cam Zerhar got hurt as well as the syndesmosis issue. So between those, I mean, it's there for the taking, I think. I hope, honestly. Please, Oscar Allen could kick a bag? Question mark. That's two weeks from now. All right. Uh, we move on now to the nominees, or kind of, I guess the awards portion of the episode. So your round 17 winner was Luke Jackson over Adam Saad. We were divided between that one and I think uh, Stephen May, but I think Zayton Cordy getting concussed there probably didn't help the cause. Your nominees are Jack Lukosius over Josh Battle to set up the first goal of the game for the Suns, Dan McStay in a pack between Sean Darcy and Joel Hamling, or Shane Bolton over a pack. The guy he kind of baptized the most there was actually his teammate Hugo Ralph Smith. Jeremy McGovern was there as well. Bolton takes this one. Richmond's Western is definitely elevated back home. Weird that they played only one game against both the Western teams this year, and both of them were in Perth. Yeah, that seems like a really bizarre scheduling thing. I'm, I'm also going to go Bolton, but Lukosius, decent second. McStay is nowhere near the level of the others. The round 17 goal of the week winner was Connor Rosie with his roller from a nearly non-existent angle. You could see that on Brownlow night. This felt like the first week that they were really fishing for nominees, and they were all kind of kicks from around the 40 to 45 meter range. There was Jasper Fletcher getting an intercept of a risky Alex Neal Bowen kick in a one-on-one with Ed Langdon. I think the most impressive part was that he got the intercept and ended up finishing himself after bouncing. Tajwa Woden received a long Jack Videy handball along the boundary, and his shot was difficult because it was on the right on the right hand boundary as a right footer. And then Jeremy Cameron had a three-disposal sequence coming from an interceptive and Nick Hind scrub kick. I'm going with Wawoden between it being a first career goal and being a tougher kick. I think his was definitely the best of the three. None of these particularly memorable, but Wawoden probably the best of them. And your main character for the week? Well, firstly, I just want to go over really all the nominees because really there were four. I guess the honorable mentions then. You know, Stuart Dew was sacked Tuesday, and we thought it was going to be him for a while, and then the rest of the week developed. Jesse Motlop had his four goals after being a late-in for Matt Owies. Those four goals came in the first half as Carlton asserted their dominance, as Grian Harambe is trying to assert his dominance over Ethan's comforters at the moment. Someone we've begun to interact with a lot on Twitter, Rory Kilpatrick, also known as Glicko. He nailed both the Thursday and Friday night predictions, Sydney by two and Melbourne by one. Difficult for even the most advanced algorithms to hit 
those spreads to the exact point. But Jared Waitley is the winner, yes? Yeah, he's got to be. The South Mega fan fake quote was awesome, but Waitley or Whatley, his response to it, it, it seems as if he has never been the subject of misinformation on Twitter before, and it was hilarious to watch, and then also to have Brian play well in his hundredth after that. And just that, like I said, like my favorite player, who I literally named the cat after, who is, by the way, right next to me, is he coming right now for the moment? He may give himself a bath, so that probably helps. But for him to be the subject of the meme and for it to blow up like this so quickly, it's too perfect. That's your obvious winner for the round. I think this is the first time we've gotten to call a media person the main character, yeah? Yeah, I'm surprised it's Jared before Kane Corns. I'm surprised it took until round 18. Alright, that's just about gonna do it for us. So, you know the drill. Our collective Twitter is at Americans Footy. He's at Castle Media. I'm at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe's on Instagram with cat named Brian. And we'll come to you again soon for our 120th episode, which will be our round 19 preview as we get past the three quarters mark of the Home and Away campaign. 